Folks, if you turn there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 into chapter 5 is where we're going to be this evening. Whenever you come to the pulpit and face uh, the singing congregation, you, you get to see uh, sometimes something that probably none of you can see. Um, I, I saw you sing that song and I, I think I saw for many of you that this idea that, that he, he holds us, it's an idea that the psalmist first spoke of, of he holds us in his right hand. That, that seems to speak to many of you. It's a, a precious truth and a, a beautiful song to help us remember it. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the truth we've just sung, uh, that you, you do hold us, those who are in Christ, you hold us fast. Not life, not death will take us from your grasp. Lord, as we come to your word this evening, we pray that you'd uh, lift the truths from the page, bring them to our minds, and then drop them deep into our hearts. Let us see again how in Christ you hold us fast. Amen. Folks, I wonder how you felt as we read our passage this evening. Uh, maybe you've always loved reading Bible passages, hearing preaching about what people call the end times. Maybe that really lights you up. Maybe you're somebody who feels a wee bit anxious. Talk about death and the second coming of Jesus makes you uh, feel a little bit nervous. Or, or maybe you're just plain confused. After reading this part of 1 Thessalonians, you don't really have the first idea what to make of it all. Depending on your church background, you might have had some interesting interpretations of passages like this over the years. Eugene Peterson tells at one point in his writings of his experience of growing up in the small Norwegian congregation in Montana where he was a child. And he introduces us to a fascinating character by the name of Sister Lycan. Uh, and he, she, she latched on to the teaching of this passage in a very particular way. I'll let Peterson himself tell the story of his confusion. Sister Lycan, every adult in our small congregation was either sister or brother, was a significant figure in our church. She was an ancient, small wisp of a woman, five feet tall and shrinking. She lived in a small house in our neighborhood. The shades were always drawn. I walked and rode my bike often past her house. I never saw her step out of her always darkened house except on a Sunday when we picked her up and drove her to church. During the testimony and prayer time, with liturgical regularity in our defiantly anti-liturgical Pentecostal worship, she stood to her feet and said that the Lord had revealed to her that she would not die before the second coming of Jesus. He had told her that she would be caught up with all the saints in the clouds and meet him in the air. Maybe you've spotted the reference to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. 
every week she'd rehearse the same speech. Every Sunday, word perfect. I was very impressed. When I was about eight years old, I started calculating how much time I had left on this earth, for I took it for granted that I too would be caught up. She was at least 90 years old. Giving her increasing feebleness and her loss of stature, she was shrinking at the rate of about an inch per year. I figured that she might live for another five or six years at most. I would be 14 at the time the rapture occurred. That meant I'd never get to drive a car. A big disappointment. When I was 10 years old, Sister Lycan died. Peterson goes on to explain how confused he was during her funeral and the weeks that followed at church. The building was still standing, the folks were still gathering, no rapture, in fact, nobody seemed to notice. Everyone just seemed to get on business as usual. These events left his eight-year-old self among the ranks of the confused. I hope that our time together this evening will answer some questions for those who are intrigued, will bring some comfort to those who are anxious, and it'll offer some help to those who are confused. In our passage this evening, Paul deals with a couple of concerns the Thessalonians seem to have raised for him. One, about the death of their loved ones, and two, about the second coming of Jesus. I'm going to summarize his teaching under four headings. Don't worry about those who have died. Don't worry about the return of Christ. Do look forward to being with Jesus and do encourage one another. So first of all, Paul says to the believers in Thessalonica, don't worry about those believers who have died. Look at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Paul raises this subject and he's raising what I think is the first and actually only matter in this letter which the, the Thessalonians are receiving instruction on for the first time. It's not something I don't think that he taught them about when he first planted the church in Thessalonica. It seems like a question that they have raised with him. Maybe when Timothy went to visit, uh, a question that Timothy would have brought back uh, on his visit to the city and brought it back to Paul. And the issue appears to be, what has happened to that person or those people who among us have died before the coming of the Lord? Now, we're not sure why they're asking this question. Did they expect Jesus to return before any member of their community had died? I think they maybe did. And I think the death of a member or more of their community has left them perplexed. That seems likely, but we can't be sure. All we know is that, that the deaths that have happened among them have unsettled them. They've raised questions for them. And Paul takes the opportunity of this letter to encourage them in their grief. Although he writes quite a bit, his answer is actually really, really straightforward. Maybe you spotted it. 
Believers who have died in Christ will join the living on Christ's return. Throughout the history of the church, this passage has led to all sorts of speculation about what exactly might happen at the second coming of Jesus. But what I've just said is the basic gist of Paul's response here. Paul's concern here isn't to give us the last word, everything that we might know about the second coming of Jesus. It's to deal with a very real pastoral issue and, and to reassure these relatively new Christians regarding the death or deaths of their loved ones. Let's not this evening fall into the trap of speculating. Let's instead stick with what's uh, in the text, what Paul gives us. In verse 14, he begins with a general statement about Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of those who are in him. He, he presents it in the form of a creed, things that we believe. The creed has three clauses. The first relates to Jesus. He died and rose again, verse 14a. The second clause relates to the Christian dead. God will bring them with Jesus. And the third, to the Christian living. They will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. As I say, that's a, a very basic statement of Christian faith. Jesus Christ, who was crucified, rose from the dead. And those who are in Christ, that is, who have repented and believed, those who have put their trust in him, will rise with him. The particular idea that Paul's adding here, the thing that we get in 1 Thessalonians 4 and maybe not in many other places, is Paul's response to this particular pastoral concern. And that is those who are dead at the time of Christ's return but are in Christ. His point's a simple one. If God didn't abandon his own son to the grave, he will not abandon those who are in Jesus to the grave either. They're not going to be disadvantaged. They're not going to be left behind. Everyone who's in Christ, whether living or already in the grave, they'll be raised up to meet with Christ when he returns. As he so often does, John Stott captures this well when he says, the apostles' emphasis here is on the unbreakable solidarity which the people of Christ enjoy with him and with each other, and which death is utterly unable to destroy. So there it is. That's the, the simple, basic meaning of, of this passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verses 14 Paul, and 15, Paul's been focusing our attention on the who of Christ's return. In verses 16 to 17, he gives us a little insight into the how. There, there's a lot of rich imagery here. It's the kind of thing that people have used over the years to, to speculate uh, about the second coming of Jesus. I'm going to try and avoid that, but what we're going to do for a couple of moments is just notice what's there and see what we can wisely say about it. We can split the material here into four different stages. The first being the return of Jesus, verse 16. We're told that he'll return and that he'll be accompanied with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. 
Paul's using some Old Testament imagery here uh, and some Jewish imagery. And what I think he's doing is he's repurposing it for the Greco-Roman culture into which he's writing. Why do I say that? Well, what he's describing here is the fanfare that the Thessalonians would, would recognize straight away. It's the herald who is heralding the visit of an emperor to the city. What Paul's telling us here is that the second coming of Jesus is like the coming of the emperor to the city of Thessalonica. The return of Jesus is the return of the king. The second stage which Paul's telling us about is the second half of verse 16. We've already talked about the resurrection, so I'm not going to labor that just now. The third stage, and just to keep us using the letter R, we'll call the rapture. We see that here in the opening part of verse 17. Our English word rapture comes from the Latin word rapere, which means to seize. It corresponds with the Greek here in verse 17, which Paul uses. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up or raptured. Paul doesn't tell us much about how we're going to meet the Lord in the air or about how literally we should take this idea that we're going to be caught up in the clouds. Maybe that's okay. Maybe we should just accept that it will somehow be so. The fourth stage is by far the most important one. It's the one I want to stress for you this evening. Whatever way the return of Christ plays out, we should see that that momentary encounter, that momentary coming together of Christ and his people is going to lead to an everlasting fellowship with him. Jesus is descending. His saints living and dead are ascending so that we can meet together, so that we can be together, reunited at last. Folks, I don't know if you've picked this up yet as a passion of mine in my ministry. I love teaching you about the truth that God made you and Jesus saved you so that you can be with him. I hope you know that. From the beginning of scripture to its very end, it's a melody line that just never quite goes away. God wants us with him. It's in this passage. This is just one of the places where it bubbles up to the surface. Look with me. In verse 14, we're told of those Christians who've died in Christ that God will bring them with Jesus. In verse 17, we're told that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Also in verse 17, we're told that the living and the previously dead, all those who are in Christ, will be with the Lord forever. That's what this is all about. It's not about us speculating wildly about what exactly is going to happen when Jesus returns. Put that please to one side. This is all about you 
if you're in Christ and me being with him forever. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who is in Christ, who's trusted in him, enjoying him together forever. Isn't it glorious? Folks, after that breathless rush through Paul's teaching on the return of Jesus, let's remember why he's included this in his letter. He's told his readers, verse 13, that he doesn't want them to be uninformed about their loved ones who have died, but he doesn't leave it there. He tells them why he doesn't want them to be uninformed. He says it's so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Everything Paul's teaching here, he's teaching for that purpose. To give us hope. To restore our hope. The hope of his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. The, the hope that we have in Jesus. We need to slow down for just a moment and make sure we're receiving this teaching as God intends it for us this evening. Let me be clear. Paul's concern isn't that there'd be no sorrow in Thessalonica. Sometimes to hear Christians talk about the death of a loved one, you'd, you'd get this sense that, that we're not allowed to grieve. That because we trust in Jesus, because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus and those who are in him, that, that we somehow aren't allowed to experience sorrow. Folks, I, I don't think that's true. Maybe you have experienced deep sorrow in recent times. Sorrow that's still real and raw with you. Don't, don't hear God's word this evening dismissing or discounting that experience. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's point is that those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the resurrection of those who are in him do not sorrow as other people do who have no hope. Folks, I've conducted many funerals of people who lack hope. That's a desolate place to be. Maybe you know from experience what I'm talking about. We may well offer a Christian hope as we host a funeral service, but, but there's no hope in that household, in that family. Let me tell you, it's the world of a difference. It's night and day to lead a community of people whose loved one is in Christ, where the family are in Christ, and together they share a hope that they'll be with each other and with the Lord. It's night and day. Folks, we are not as those who grieve without hope, but we're full of hope even as we grieve. Those who trust in Jesus, oh, how they hope. 
We're going to pause there for a moment and, and sing together. We'll look at the second passage a, a little bit more briefly after we sing this hymn together. When I looked for hymn, please take a seat, keep your Bible before you, and turn with me to chapter 5, those opening verses. So in the first half of our passage, Paul's dealt with one concern raised by the believers there in Thessalonica, those who have died in Christ. He says, don't worry about them. The Lord will raise them up to meet with him. Now in the second half of our passage, Paul deals with a, a second concern, namely that of those who are still alive and are facing the coming last judgment. And again, he tells them not to worry. Let's notice how he does it. He spends the first three verses talking them out of the, the wrong answer to their question. They're worried about the second coming, the final judgment, and so they're, they're focusing on the timing. I, I don't know if you can remember a time in your life when you were trying to guess when Jesus would come again. I, I think I, I remember times when I did that as a kid. They reckon that if, if we knew when Jesus was coming, then we could be ready for it. I think the logic goes something like this. If I knew when he was coming, then I could behave well in that moment, which means I don't have to behave well any other time. Are you with me? That, that kind of logic. As long as he catches me in a moment when I'm being good, then I can not be so good at other times. It's not, not, a, great, not a great way to think about Jesus' return. Paul urges them to set all questions of timing aside. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. I have a sense here that when Paul was with them, he'd told them about a second coming of Jesus, about a, a final day of judgment. He's taught them presumably already that no one knows when it will be. And he reinforces the reality here in chapter 5 with two metaphors. He says, first of all, that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. One thing about thieves coming to rob your house is that we don't know when they're coming. Isn't that right? That's the one thing you know about a thief coming. On Tuesday night of this week, Paul Pogba's home was burgled while his children slept in bed and while he played for Man United on the pitch at Old Trafford, the burglars didn't tell him that they were coming. Otherwise, he would have made some arrangements for it. That's the point Paul's making here. We don't know when the second coming will be. Paul fills out his, his teaching about timing a little bit with a second metaphor. He says it'll come suddenly as a woman, as labor pains on a pregnant woman. This metaphor develops it a little bit. It keeps, keeps our idea of the suddenness. A thief coming in the night's unexpected in terms of the exact timing. Labor pains are a bit like that too. But, but there's a slight nuance here, a difference. A, a lab, uh, the labor pains are finally expected. We do expect them to come at some point. There's an inevitability about them. Paul wants his readers to be sure of the second coming of Jesus. Like labor pains, it's inevitable. 
but you can't just book the exact moment in your diary. So the Thessalonians, who were hoping that they could be ready for the second coming of Jesus by knowing when it would happen, he leaves them disappointed. He leaves them disappointed in that regard, but he doesn't leave them stuck. He gives them a much, much better way to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. A much better answer to the question. He does that in verses 4 to 8, where he encourages them to be alert. He keeps the thief metaphor going. And he says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. The thief surprises people because he comes at night. Think about it for a moment. If a thief comes at night, why would he surprise you? One, well, you can't see very well at night to see that he's coming. It, it may be that you're, you're drunk. That's more likely to be the case at night. Or it may be that you're asleep. If, if you take those three ideas together, you have this sense that we're just not ready. We're sleeping, we're drunk, or uh, we can't see. Those who believe in Jesus are not children of the night, says Paul, but children of the daytime. They are people who can see. They are sober. They're awake. In all these respects, they're alert. So this is how we live in the light of Jesus, pending return, his second coming, and the last judgment. We stay alert. That way we won't be taken by surprise. Verse 8, Paul says, we're not only to be alert, we need to be armed for battle. That battle which every Christian fights every day. We put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Paul likens Christians as soldiers. He does that in a few different passages. When he talks about armor, he does so most famously in Ephesians chapter 6. The, the interesting thing here is that he doesn't seem to be too careful about how he uses the metaphors. In Ephesians 6, it's the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet is salvation, whereas here in our passage, the breastplate and the helmet together represent faith, love, and hope. Folks, if we're to stand strong as children of light in a dark world, we need to keep looking beyond ourselves, to keep putting our faith in God, to keep loving one another, and to keep our hope in God's promised future. In the remaining verses of this section, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the grounds for our hope. He tells us why we don't need to fear the second coming of Jesus. And this is powerful. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why I don't want a single person here this evening who's in Christ to have a, a concern at all about the second coming of Jesus. Read this. You're not appointed for wrath. We know that judgment will fall. We know that verdict will be passed. We know this, 
that we will be declared innocent because the innocent one has been declared guilty. We know that we won't suffer God's wrath because Jesus Christ in the cross already has. We'll receive, we're appointed, Paul says, for salvation. Do you know that? Whatever that day's going to be, your appointment is not with judgment. It's not with wrath. It's with salvation. Please hear that and own it. And don't allow Satan to take that from you or to undermine it. We receive salvation on that day through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful? Folks, this is the gospel. This is our hope. This is why we don't fear the second coming of Jesus. So we've seen in God's word this evening that we don't need to worry about our loved ones who are in Christ and we don't need to worry about Jesus' second coming. Whenever I offered you an outline, I said there were four points. Don't panic. The last two are so, so brief. There are two positive things that Paul points us to in his teaching. We're to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. We noticed it in the closing verses of chapter 4, how it all drives towards verse 17. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Notice that in our passage in chapter 5, that it, it ends up in the same place, verse 10. He's talked about the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, and Paul makes it clear that he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. That's where this is all going. The goal of our salvation isn't simply to clean us up. It's not even to get us through the judgment. It's to bring us home. It's so that we can be with him. Jesus wants us with him. Tonight we've read and considered Paul's teaching about our future life in the presence of God, uh, the, the future life that we have, uh, all those of us who die knowing Jesus. Folks, I'm going to imagine that there's nothing here that's very new to most of us. We know these words. We know this kind of teaching. But, but here's my question. Do you believe this? I'm not sure that all of us always do. We need to believe this. Jesus invites us this evening to believe this. What do I mean? One day when Jesus was with his friends, Mary and Martha, at a funeral of their brother, Lazarus, he was in territory much like what we have spent this last half hour in this evening. He was thinking of questions of life and death. He was thinking of what happens to our loved ones when they've died. And he turned to Mary and Martha and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. 
and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He said that, and those words are very familiar to us. Maybe you draw comfort from hearing those words of Jesus, but that wasn't where Jesus finished. He said those words to Mary and Martha about him being the resurrection and the life, about those who, who trust in him having a, a life beyond the grave. He said those words to them, and then he looked them in the eye, and he said, do you believe this? And I want to confront you and myself with that same question this evening. As your pastor, I can't do anything else. Do you believe this? That if you die in Christ, you're entirely safe. That if your loved ones have passed into the presence of Jesus now or will in the future, they're entirely safe. Do you believe this? It would make all the difference in the world if you did. One writer this week helped me to see that. He said, to really believe the teaching of the Bible about death would be to act straightforwardly and spontaneously as if they were true. It would be to be confident with every pore of our being that any friend of Jesus is far better off dead. It would be to rejoice in the midst of our parting sorrows over the indescribably greater well-being of our loved one who's moved on farther up and farther in to the greatness of God and to his Folks, think for a moment of some of Jesus' own teaching on death. On one occasion, he said to his closest friends, if you loved me, you'd rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. If only you had eyes to see, you'd see that death is the doorway to a much, much greater kind of life. What was it he said at the time of his own death to the thief dying beside him on the cross. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. Today we get to leave this thing behind and we get to go to paradise. Was he lying? Was he giving this guy false hope? Or was he speaking the truth? Think of how Paul adopted Jesus' teaching about death and made it his own. He said, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul has glimpsed somehow that, that the paradise that Jesus promised to the dying thief is real. And he's able to tell the Philippians that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that his desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is better by far. Folks, when we put all this together, 
the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Paul, this passage we've read this evening. Paul is simply talking now as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's simply come to see that whenever Jesus promises us life to the full, he really means it. It's a life that's eternal in quality as well as quantity. And it's a life that begins the moment we trust in him. It's a life that carries us through death and the grave. Don't worry, says Paul, about those who've died. Don't worry about the return of Jesus. Do look forward to being with one another. And do encourage one another is the last thing he says. Notice that at the end of each of our paragraphs this evening. Chapter 4, verse 18, do encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up. I love what he says at the very end of verse 11 of chapter 5. He says, encourage one another just as you are in fact doing. You're doing it. You're encouraging each other to live holy lives, what we read about in the early half of chapter 4. You're encouraging each other to persevere in the face of persecution, something that's been a theme right throughout this letter. You're encouraging each other now in the face of even of death, the, the death of our loved ones and our own death one day. Friends, tonight we've talked about something that we don't talk about all that often anymore, about death and the truth that Jesus will one day return. You're going to be with him. You're going to be with him. We're going to be with him together. And I want to encourage you this evening with those words. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your kindness in your word this evening. You've taken some of the deepest concerns of the human heart and in your grace you've made them part of your revelation to us. You've offered us comfort here in your word. Lord, we do care about those whom we love who've, who've gone. Thank you for the hope that's offered to us that those who are in Christ will be raised. Lord, we do have concerns uh, about our loved ones who will die uh, and our own death in the future. Thank you for this reminder that in Jesus, we are appointed not for judgment or for wrath, but for salvation. Lord, we pray that your word would do its work in our hearts this evening, that it would give us a, a strong hope a steadfast trust in you that we would look at, at tomorrow and the week and month and year ahead that we would look our lives 
in the eye and we'd say we we are not afraid of whatever this life brings and even whatever death brings because we trust Jesus Christ who's gone before us through death and the grave. We believe that he will hold us fast. Lord, thank you for the confidence we can have in you because of Jesus. Press it deep into our hearts, we pray.